As we come to the scripture, let me ask you, uh, please, uh, to pray with me. Father, you say that your scripture, the word of God, revives the soul. And um, we could use a little of that to be revived, to have real hope in the days in which we live. Um, And so I pray that by this passage this morning that we read together and think about, that Holy Spirit you'd be uh, moving in such a way that uh, we would leave with great hope. This that I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, please, to Ruth in chapter 4. I just want to read the ending paragraph beginning with verse 18. Luke in chapter 4, please. We've been in Ruth for a few weeks now, finishing up um, our time this morning. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathers fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, uh, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Ever since I was a little kid, I've had wonders about what it would be like to be imprisoned for my faith. And how it is I could persevere and persevere with perhaps others who might be there. And so this scene uh, came to my mind that uh, here I was imprisoned with 20 other Christians for my faith. Uh, We were all separated, each one in solitary confinement, except for this 30-minute time period every day in the exercise yard when we could be uh, together. There was just one Bible among us. And to keep it safe, it was in the possession of one of the prisoners, one of us. And so every day, the one in charge of the Bible would open it and tear out one sheet, one page. And in the exercise yard, would give it to one of the prisoners. Who would then take it, and the instruction was to memorize it, destroy it. And then the next day to have something to share walking around the exercise yard from that passage that would enable the other prisoners to persevere for another day. So I would anticipate my day. It would be my day and one day and uh, because I wasn't in charge of the Bible. And so on my day, the person who was in charge would tear out that sheet and find me in the exercise yard, would go off to a corner, hand it to me, I'd tuck it in my belt and then go off when it was time to my cell and I would, I would wait a while to make sure everything was safe and I would take that piece of paper out of my belt and begin to read it and find that I had a genealogy. You know, what I called as a kid, the begats. I don't know if you ever read the King James Version of the Bible, but so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so. As a little kid, I didn't know what begat meant, but I didn't think I was supposed to ask for a while. And uh, yet, there it was. And I think, oh no, what am I going to do with this? Well, there's much to do with this. In fact, this particular genealogy, it it sort of comes in. And if you're reading the Bible through, like many of us do periodically through the Bible in the year, whatever our reading program is, or uh, however we pick it up. And we read Ruth and we read the end. We kind of go quickly. I usually go quickly when I have a bunch of names, A, because generally they're unpronounceable and not very memorable. I don't know who these people are necessarily. And and, and so you kind of skip the genealogies. Uh, In fact, in some Bible reading programs, they they actually skip them uh, because... 
And yet here, we need to pay attention. Because I suggest, and many others would suggest, that perhaps this is the primary reason why this little book is in the scripture at all. For this, uh, to give us, frankly, uh, real, real hope. If I could just review this story just very quickly. Uh, if you've been with us, you know it. If you have read it, perhaps in literature and other places, this event that took place in ancient Israel. Scene one uh, begins really with suspense and ends in tragedy. You remember the opening scene, the suspense, it's in the days of the judges, so we get that. We know that it's not in a good time period for ancient Israel. Uh, the, 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 the commentary on that time period is that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then we realize there's a famine in the city of Bethlehem in Israel, in Judah, and we know that means that the people of God must have been unfaithful. Now a famine has come. We have these people, Elimelech, Naomi, their sons, and they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab. And before we can even evaluate whether that was a good idea or not, we, tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. Naomi is a widow. She has two sons. They marry Moabite women. We don't think that's a good idea for an Israelite to do, given what the scripture has said about that. And, and then the sons die. And there's Naomi without any hope in the world, if you will, by what she could put her hope in, her husband, her sons, and all that would come with that. And she's in a foreign land. She has no name. The second scene opens with with a a bit of uh, perhaps even hope. There's there's food now in, in Bethlehem. And so Naomi decides to go back. But she has these daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, and, and they start with her, but she pleads with them, don't come with me, I have nothing for you, I have no other sons that you can marry and, 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 and have offspring, have children, uh, so, so we won't have any property, we won't have any inheritance, we won't have any name in, in Israel, I can't offer you anything, it's all, go back home. And, and Orpah goes back, but Ruth says, no, I can't, and the reason she says she can't is because she's, she loves Naomi, of course, but, but more than that, she's been converted to the God of Naomi, and she doesn't want to go back to godless Moab, but wants to go into Israel and, and live this out in the context of the covenant people of God. And yet scene two ends with Naomi expressing this bitter life that, how does she put it, that the hand of God has gone out against her. Or as our old Puritan friends would say, she was living under a frowning providence. And she said, don't go back. But Ruth did. But there she is. She tells the people back in Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi anymore. That means pleasant. Call me Mara. That means bitter. Because my life is a bitter one. And yet Ruth is with her. The next scene, scene three, kind of opens with with a little bit of um, curiosity. We get some information that, that there's this man, Boaz, in Bethlehem. Who's a near relative of Naomi. And we begin to think about that. It's just put in our heads by the narrator. And we realize that having relatives like that can be very helpful in, in Israel. Because such relatives can buy your property back. And retain it for you. And even marry into your family and give an heir. And so you get this in our minds. So 
Ruth says, I'm going to go glean in the fields. Now, gleaning was a thing poor people did in ancient Israel. God instructed harvesters not to harvest around the corners of their field, but to leave it so that those who were in need could come and gather for themselves. And so that's what Ruth was going to do. Now, it just so happened that she gleans in a field owned by Boaz. But Boaz wasn't there. But it just so happened that the foreman of the field talked to Ruth about who she was and what she was doing, so he knew. And then it just so happened that Boaz showed up. And it just so happened when Boaz showed up, he noticed Ruth. And when he noticed Ruth, he asked the foreman, foreman who, had, who had gotten information about her. And the foreman was able to uh, give Boaz the information about who Ruth was. Boaz was impressed with how she loved Naomi and her hard work. So he brought and they ate and he helped her and he sent her home with food. And so when Ruth gets home, she lays all this out for Naomi, unbeknownst of who Boaz really is. But Naomi says, oh, this is better than you ever could have imagined. And so we're end of scene three, wondering what's going to really happen. Well, scene four opens up. And Naomi tells Ruth, go and essentially propose marriage to Boaz, our redeemer. And he, he, he will help us. And, and so all of that takes place. And Boaz is, is inclined to do that. But then there's a hitch and they're getting hitched because there's a redeemer who's closer than Boaz. And we're left at the end of that scene wondering and waiting with some measure of confidence because he gives Ruth, the token, this grain to take to Naomi that will feed them. And Naomi says, wait, he's a worthy man. Next scene opens. And things have changed. It's gone from night to day. And, and, and the scene is in the, the city square, if you will, by the gates. And, and Boaz meets this nearer kinsman, lays out the situation. And the nearer kinsman says, no, I, I can't do that because it would be too costly for me. I don't mind taking the property. But if I have to marry Ruth and there's an heir, I'll lose the property. And so there's no benefit, only cost to me. So I won't do it. And Boaz says, that's great. I'll do it. And Boaz becomes their redeemer. And in redeeming, he buys the property Naomi can live. He marries Ruth. A child is born, Obed, an heir. And now everything is restored. And, and perhaps even better, the property belongs now back in the, in the hands, in the name of Elimelech, Naomi's husband who had passed. And now there's an heir, so they'll remain and have a place in the promised land, in the land of God, uh, from generation to generation. And Naomi, who left Bethlehem full, ended up empty when she went back, is now fuller still. Her bitterness gone. And here she is. Now, the story ended there. It'd be great. We'd get a great deal of, of hope uh, from it, you see, uh, because we have this wonderful family who's living in covenant with God. And even though they seem to stray to go to Moab, still God blesses them as they return and we see all fulfilled. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful hope-filled story. Because you see, for people of God to have hope, we need to know three things about him. More, but these three at least. One, that he's good. Two, that he's wise. 
And three, that he's sovereign. Because if he's good, but he's not wise, then he'll want to do the best thing, but not know what it is. (laughs) Or if he's good and not sovereign, then he want to do the best thing, may even know what the best thing is, but, but be unable to carry it out because he's not sovereign. He doesn't rule over all things. Something could thwart him. That was the thesis of a book written decades ago now called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Which ended up being a bad book for all people. Because the thesis was, God empathizes. He wants to help us. He just can't. Or, if God is wise and sovereign but not good, then we may have the worst of all situations. A tyrant, a madness would reign on the earth in that setting. But if he's good, then he desires the best. If he's wise, he knows the best and how to get there. And if he's sovereign, he will. And we see that in, in, the, in the life of this family. We see God at work. I'm just fascinated. I hope you are too at times. <clears throat> As you think about this, in the days of Judges, it's chaotic in Israel. And if you just look from the big picture, you would look down at Israel and think, nothing good can come of this situation at all. And then, and then God kind of folds it all back for us. And we see this one family and he says, watch. And he folds it all back and we watch this family. And like at first we're a little troubled because they're moving away and all the tragedy that happens. But then he brings them back and restores. And we go, what a wonderful redeemer. And we we learn about what it means that God is our redeemer. That that he does it. it It's of his free grace that he pays the cost. It's guaranteed. It's certain. God is good and he's wise. We realize... If you had asked Ruth or Naomi, even Boaz at any one point in time, even by Naomi's testimony, it didn't always look that way at all. But when we tell ourselves the whole story, we go, but we, we see it now. We see what God was doing in their lives. Maybe when life doesn't look so good for us, still God is at work and still he's redeeming and still he's helping. And, 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 and someday we'll see the bigger picture. Do you remember in the life of the prophet Elisha, um, the king of Syria, this is in Second Kings chapter 6. The king of Syria <clears throat> wanted to uh, do battle, if you will, against the Israelites. But, um, but Elisha seemed to always know what the king of Syria was going to do before he did it, and he would inform the king. And so Israel was always safe, and the, the king of Syria was always upset about that. So he brought than his armies against Elisha, the prophet. And, and the prophet sees this and he has one of his servants with him and they, they, they look out and the servant gets all nervous and scared. And he says, look, we can't do anything. Look at all those, this vast army against us. And you get the feeling Elisha kind of rolled his eyes and prayed, Lord, open his eyes. And so the Lord opens the eyes of the servant and he looks out and he sees chariots of fire out there, the the very armies of God. And you should read the story. It has a very interesting ending. But but that sense of we don't always see it, but God really is at work. That's why the psalmist could write in Psalm 46, be still and know that I'm God. You remember how that psalm begins? It begins with everything falling apart. 
with the mountains falling into the sea, with the earth shaking and trembling, meaning that everything that we normally think is stable and we can count on, we can't count on anymore because it's not stable. Everything falling apart. And in the midst of that, the end of that really, uh, the psalmist writes, from God, be still and know that I'm God. And you want to say, how can we be still? And the psalmist says, well, know that God is God. That God is good. That God is wise. And no matter what it looks like, he rules and reigns over all things. Even now, when the mountains are falling into the sea, when the earth is shaking. Be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. God says, someday you'll see it. Someday you'll see it. Now, in the midst of this story with Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, and all of these, at any one point in time, if we just dropped our finger down, we go, how is this going to end? What's, what good is going to happen out of this? And, and, and so kindly, God takes us through all of this and shows us the final, if you will, work. And he says, look what happens. Everything is restored. Obed is born. And we go, yes. How wonderful is that? You ever wonder if anything's really going to come of this life that we live? Uh, we have great promises from God. You ever wonder if they're really going to be fulfilled ultimately? Remember in Second Peter in chapter 3, even in those early days of the church, there were scoffers coming around and, and scoffing, as Peter says, uh, and, and asking the question, so when is this return really going to happen? When is this Jesus really going to, really going to come back? Uh, he hasn't come back yet. When is everything going to be fulfilled? And, and here we are still, and it hasn't been utterly fulfilled. And we wonder. And he said, no, 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 trust me. I'm really at work fulfilling my promises, fulfilling all of this. And even less dramatic than that, I suppose, more daily. You ever wonder in your own life, is there anything going to come of this? You're a business person, you do business, and, and, and you, you know why. In the short run, it earns money for you, and perhaps even helps others earn money, and so we can all live, and, and all that's good, but, but you do realize that markets change, and you could lose all of this, and you wonder, well, what was it all for? Or you know that you're going to die, the Ecclesiastes writes in the Bible, you're going to die and leave it to somebody else who may squander it, and so is it, what's really, is there anything really going on, you see? If you're a student and you're studying, is there anything really going to come of this? Why should I keep doing this? Or you're an educator and you wonder, are these kids ever getting anything at all? (laughs) And you know that in the next generation, all the educational philosophies will change. And you know that because you're operating under educational philosophies that you changed from the previous generation. And and you wonder, is anything going to be lasting uh, out of this? And you're a mom and... Spend all your days wiping noses and kitchen floors. And you wonder, is this really valuable? Is anything really going to come of this? And we spend our lives eating well and working out. And then somehow one day that all seems to fall apart physically even. And you wonder, why are we doing this? You're a Sunday school teacher. And there you are one Sunday morning trying to get kids to glue macaroni on a piece of paper in the shape of a cross and you wonder are they going to get any of this 
Is this really going to help them in the course of their life? I, is it really, really working? Um, struggle with your sexual identity and you're asking, is this struggle worth it? Any good going to come out of this? And then we think of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And the Lord says, I'm at work in all this. Follow me. I'm at work in all of this. Live in me. I'm at work in all. You may not see it right now, but a day will come when you will, when you really see it, you see. One of the great anticipations, I think, of glory is when we walk around and meet people. I don't have any idea what that's going to be like. So please don't write this down. But, but just in my own mind, to think about that and, and to think about, you know, I wonder if the Sunday school teacher who is going to meet the kid who ate more macaroni than he glued uh, and, and, and he'll be in heaven or she'll be in glory and, and, and say, yeah, you know, I, I didn't really think about this till I was 35 and then I did. And I came to faith. Or those neighbors across the street that you've always been wanting to witness to and you've tried on various occasions and you leave and it seems like it always fails. Your Roman road's kind of crooked or you only could get two of the spiritual laws. And, 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 and so you just, you wonder, is that ever going to have an impact on their life? And then you, you see them in glory and they say something like, I just, I just watched you every Sunday go to church. And the day came in my life when I thought, I should do that. I need that. Maybe there's something there for me. And we never know it, but God is at work in the course of our lives. Or the money that you give, or the prayers that you pray. Does it really matter? And the answer is yes. Why? Because God is really at work. We tell ourselves the story of Ruth. We say, oh yes, I get it. God is really at work. That wonderful doxology slash benediction that we use Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church, Jesus to be seen, and in Christ Jesus, now and always. And so this sense of it, that be still because God will be exalted. He really is at work and, and we will be amazed. And again, we have this story of Ruth. We keep, must keep telling it to ourselves and, and, and not get used to it, but be amazed by it to see how God was at work there. He doesn't show us every situation and everything, especially in the context of our own lives, but he gives us clues. He gives us evidence. He gives us these incidents that we're going to play over and say, oh yeah, I bet, I bet this is really when, really when you're discouraged. Tell yourself this story. And you may say, well, it's not working out this way for me. But remember, in chapter 3, Naomi wouldn't have said that either. But at the end, she goes, oh, yeah. I'm bouncing this baby boy on my lap. Who would have ever thunk that I'd be in that situation? There's really hope. Why? Because God really is good. And he really is wise. And he does rule and reign over all things. But there's something else there. Two things, really. And it comes from this, this genealogy 
Um, you see, all of this was leading this whole incident in the life of, of Elimelech, who died in the Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. All of it was leading, at least as we have it here, to King David, which was an amazing thing. Now, we don't know exactly when the book of Ruth was written. We know the time period when it took place, but we don't know when it was actually written. The sense is it was written sometime after David became king so that we could have this genealogy. Now, it's possible, as in other sections of scripture, like with Moses, that someone uh, went and kind of penciled that in. But this seems so crucial to the whole story that it seems like it was written after David. Plus, we have this little marker in chapter 4, verse 7. With the narrator says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. In other words, he's going to point back to the times of Ruth and saying, uh, this is what happened back then. As if to say, it's not quite happening. We don't do it this way now. Maybe they didn't give, take off their sandals when they made a deal in the time when the writer was writing. And so we, we get the sense it was written later. It's no big deal. It's still the inspired word of God. Still perfectly accurate in everything that it, that it, it lays out for us. But let's say that it was written sometime in David's reign. The people could look back and say, oh, the faithfulness of God. Back in the days of judges, the judges who would have ever thought we we would even be a nation. But but now look, God is faithful. and, And here we are all the way to David. And remember, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz had no idea that that's what was going to come of all this. They were just living their lives. They were just making decisions as covenant people and, and following God in various ways. And, and look what happened. King David came out of, out, of all of, out of all of this. Who would have ever thought that would be the case? God is fulfilling his purposes. He will not be thwarted. If you're ever wondering, ever worried about whether or not God's purposes will be thwarted or stalled, then I would urge you to rehearse this little story in your mind and go, oh yeah, God really is at work. King David came out of all that. Or or perhaps those who were in the exile sometime later after David's reign, after the the country of Israel, the nation of Israel split and all of that, and and even after the the northern kingdom was destroyed and the southern kingdom was exiled later, and they're in exile and they're wondering. We have these promises uh, about being freed and being released after 70 years. Could that possibly be true? It doesn't look like it at all. And then maybe somebody would have the little pages of Ruth that day and be able to say, oh, remember what God was doing then. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. They didn't know what God was doing to to, to build his kingdom, to to make all of this happen. And so here we are. It doesn't look like it to us either, but, but, but David came out of this. So rest assured that God is at work. But I'm sure you're starting to think already that there's something bigger than even that. Because the prophets would speak of one who would come from David. Who would be the very presence of God on the earth. This one who would come. This Emmanuel. Isaiah spoke of him of, as the one who would come from the stump of Jesse. 
Jeremiah would speak of him as this righteous branch from David. And so we see it. Um, Turn quickly to Matthew in chapter 1. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So there you have it already. This Obed, Obed, and then ultimately David, and then ultimately Jesus. Verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab. You should say, well, that sounds familiar. And Aminadab, the father of Nashur, and Nashur, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so what we see here is that we have this link <clears throat> to Jesus. And he said, this is how valuable, this is how important the lives of these people were. As God providentially worked in their lives, he worked in their lives in such a way to fulfill his promise to bring the Messiah, to bring Jesus from them. And, and I think they would sit back and go, we never thought about that. We just were happy. We had a baby. Obed. Everybody's thrilled. We have our property back. Everybody's thrilled. We're giving thanks to God. We never thought that this was any way, shape, or form is going to be a link to the Messiah coming. And yet, here he, he was. And so you see, if ever we wonder, are the promises that God made going to be fulfilled? And we think about those promises all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve, after Adam and Eve sinned, that God made this wonderful promise. And by the seed of the woman, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. And then this promise to Abraham that out of his seed, all the nations, all the families, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And then to David, there will always be one who will sit on your throne and rule and reign over God's people. And now we see it. Jesus. Having come through Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, these people. Back then it was the worst of times. Could God ever fulfill his promises? And the answer is yes. Yes, we sit and have sat in various generations. Perhaps every generation would say this. In difficult times, is the Lord really at work? And we look back and we say, yes, he really is at work. And it's an amazing genealogy that we have in Matthew. If we just look at the women involved uh, here. We have Tamar. I won't go into the whole story of Tamar and Judah, only to say that Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law who disguised herself as a prostitute to whom Judah 
was it, with whom Judah was intimate, and a child was born. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I list my family members, I'm not always really proud. <laughs> I'm sure they say the same thing uh, since I'm listed among them. But, you know, we just, we all have, you know, those family members. And, you know, I'm not sure I would have put Tamar in there or Judah in there, but here they are. Rahab, she was actually a prostitute. And there she is in the midst of this genealogy of Jesus. Judah, as we say, not such an upstanding citizen in his own right. David, and then of course Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Manasseh is listed in verse 10. I didn't read that section of it, but Manasseh was one of the greatest idolaters in all of ancient Israel. The sins of Manasseh carried on generation after generation and were notorious. And yet they're all listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Have you ever wondered about that? Why those particular ones? Well, I've wondered about it myself. And uh, rather than to... uh, Give you my opinion. Let me read the opinion of, of a Bible scholar named Ian Dugan. And he is a uh, professor at Westminster Seminary, one of our best seminaries, I suppose, in the country. But um, let me just read a paragraph. He says, Matthew explains Jesus' ancestry in the next section of his gospel. The angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And Jesus himself put it, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue sinners, people like his own ancestors, people like us. When he came to seek and save that which was lost, he didn't come garbed in special protective clothing like a scientist suited up to handle bubonic plague samples in a laboratory. At the beginning of his life, Jesus came into this world naked, unprotected, not separated from sinners, but descended from a long line of them. During his life, he was likewise surrounded by sinners. This was the way that people knew Jesus as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. If he kept shocking company while he was alive, Jesus also kept scandalous company when he died. He was flanked by two thieves at his crucifixion. Jesus went out of the world in the same way he had arrived, naked and unprotected. I mean, this genealogy of Jesus, we see it. Ask this question. Why would the Lord of the universe expose himself to such pain and humiliation? Well, this. It is because that is how he would save sinners. He could not save them by staying at a safe distance from them, but only by coming alongside them and identifying with them. In order to save them, Jesus had to be their friend and ultimately perform the greatest act of friendship there is, laying down his life for them. Jesus gave up his life. And went down into the earth, into death, so that he might pay the price that their sins had earned. Our sins have paid our admission price into eternal separation from God. In one word, hell. And we've seen, I mean, Jesus comes to identify with the various ones who are in his genealogy. With sinners like like us, you see. Dugan goes on to give this illustration find it helpful. He says, another way to think of it is that we are the, is that we, with the wages of our sin, have purchased a travel ticket to hell. 
What Jesus did on the cross was to take that ticket right out of our hands. Instead, he gave us the ticket that he had earned by his righteous life. A ticket that will admit the bearer into God's presence. He switched places with us, going where we deserve to go, while sending us to the destination that he had merited. That we had merited. That's, you see, Jesus. And we see that in this genealogy. It comes even from this one, Perez, uh, the father of Hezron, who came from this sinful relationship between Judah and Tamar. But not only that, that we find that this genealogy tells us something else, that Jesus came for sinners, but all kinds of people from all kinds of places. He didn't just come for Americans, but he came for Chinese and for Native Americans and for Brazilians and for Russians. Fill in whatever country you want to fill in. He didn't come just for people of one color, but people from every color skin. He didn't come from just one, uh, econo- for one economic strata, but, but for all of them, right? He came for all kinds of people. Now, in ancient Israel, there was always this discussion. What about those ones outside of Israel? Uh, did they have any hope at all? And, and you remember the Israelites were to be a light to whom? A light to the Gentiles. In fact, when Isaiah talks about the Messiah coming, what does he say? He's saying a light has come to the Gentiles, to those who walk in these other areas. And, 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 and how can we be convinced of this? Well, we can be convinced of this in a variety of ways, but at least like this, Ruth, she wasn't an Israelite. Neither was Rahab, by the way. But Ruth wasn't an Israelite. She was a, someone from Moab, a, a country that hated Israel, a country that was against Israel, a country that was against the people of God in those days, and uh, against uh, uh, even God himself. And yet here she is in the genealogy, in the genealogy of Jesus. If I could go on to quote this professor of theology in Old Testament. He writes, Ruth has come a long way in this book. She's gone from being an outcast and a stranger, the one whose existence Naomi herself would scarcely acknowledge, to becoming the wife of an upstanding citizen, the great-grandmother of Israel's future king, and the daughter-in-law who is recognized as being better than seven sons. Yet she first found a welcome from Boaz and from God while she was still a complete outsider. That's an amazing thing. Then he asked this question. Can people like Ruth find a similar welcome in our churches and in our homes? Are they places, that is our homes and churches, are they places where the last, the least, and the lost can come without feeling looked down upon? Are our churches safe places where people whose lifestyles are notorious in the community can come without being stared at and judged? Is there any danger of our fellowship being known as that church where all the sinners go? Or are we good only at welcoming those who are already somewhat religious, those who at least in some measure already speak the language of the church community and whose faces already fit? By the way, they're welcome too. 
There's a serious challenge here for us to ponder, not just for pastors and church leaders. Each of us has a role to play in what people feel when they come through our doors. Will we welcome them? Will anyone sit with them, speak to them afterward? Will someone make them feel special, important, wanted, no matter how messy their lives are? Will you make them feel like a person of eternal worth and value? We get all of that just from this genealogy, the people that God welcomes to be part of his kingdom, part of his church. All those who come to him in repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I find this little incident, this story that we have in the Old Testament, one that breeds tremendous hope in my own life. Um, a Gentile, yes, but even more than that. Though I grew up in the church and have been blessed by the church, still welcomed by the church, still welcomed by God as I come to him through Jesus. That's That breeds great hope. I look at my own life and I look at what I have and look at what I deserve and I think, thanks. I know the ticket I bought for myself. I know the ticket that Jesus took for me. I know the ticket that now I have is his for me. And I think, thank you. Will God fulfill his purposes? Well, tell yourself a story. A story about this man, Elimelech, who died and left his family, in a sense, without anything at all, and that God redeemed. He'll fulfill his purposes. Let's pray. Father, I pray for each of us on this morning that you would grant your grace to us that we'd see it, that we would be um, people who trust that you will fulfill all of your promises, all of your purposes in our individual lives, in the world in which we live, that we can trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.